Welcome to the Scale Up Your Business podcast. In this podcast, we talk about what it takes to go from startup to scale up and beyond. How to significantly grow your business, create freedom, build wealth, and live life on your terms. Featuring some very special guests and experts to give you advice and direction on your journey. And now, introducing your host, entrepreneur, investor, and scale-up specialist, Nick Bradley. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. It's Nick Bradley, and today I am going to go deep into the world of venture capital. In fact, I have got a guest on the show today who is a prolific investor. In fact, he's been an early-stage investor and entrepreneur since 1987, and he has invested in some of the big companies, certainly some of the household names um, over the last few years. So I'm going to name a couple of them. One of them is Fitbit. He was one of the first uh, early investors in Fitbit. And the other one of note is Guitar Hero. So if any of you are like me and got stuck playing uh, Xbox or PlayStation 4, maybe a decade or two ago, uh, then no doubt you've had a drunken night playing Guitar Hero. Well, this guest was also an investor in that. So that person is no other than Brad Feld. Now, he is the co-founder of the Founder Group. Uh, he also co-founded Mobius Venture Capital and prior to that, founded Intensity Ventures. He's also a co-founder of Tech Stars. He's a speaker, he's a writer, talks about all sorts of topics of venture capital investing, entrepreneurship. He's written a number of books um, as part of the Startup Revolution series and writes the blogs, Feld Thoughts and Venture Deals. He holds a Bachelor of Science and a Master of Science degrees in Management Science from MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And he's also an art collector, a long distance runner. In fact, we get stuck talking about marathon running. I think he's done something like 25 marathons and has a mission to run a finish, I should say, not run, finish a marathon in each of the 50 states in the US. So we do go a little bit into marathon running for all you people who can't stand running. I apologize, but it's not that often that I get someone who comes on the show who shares my passion for investment, entrepreneurship, and running. So please allow me to geek out a little bit with Brad at the beginning of the interview. So we're going to get into all things investing, what's a good investment, what to look into. We're also going to discuss his new book that he's written with Ian Hathaway that's called The Startup Community Way, Evolving an Entrepreneurial Ecosystem. So there we go. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Mr. Brad Feld. Hi, everyone. Nick Bradley here. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business for another week. I'm absolutely delighted and excited today to be covering a topic that we haven't gone deep into. And I'm sure you're all listening to me thinking, why the hell haven't we done it? But we're going to go into a few early stage conversations. We're going to go into the world of venture capital, investing in businesses that used to end up in my lap in the world of private equity. Um, but of course, there's a lot of hard work and money and thinking and strategy and cool stuff like that that happens before that. So I am absolutely delighted to welcome onto the show today, Brad Feld. Now, Brad is an early stage investor, an entrepreneur. He's been doing this stuff, stuff since 1987. In fact, I think I was still in high school, even though I look young. And prior to co-founding Foundry Group, he co-founded Mobius Venture Capital. Prior to that, founded Intensity Ventures. And he's also a co-founder of Techstars, writer, speaker on all things venture capital, and also a keen runner. So he's in great company. Welcome to Scale Up Your Business, Brad. Nick, thanks for having me. Awesome. Let's start with the running because that's fun. Let's start with that. So you've got a mission <laughs> to run a marathon in each of the 50 states in the US. So first question I've got for you is where are you up to on that list? Well, the, the initial mission was to do 50 a marathon in every state by the time I turned 50. So right. I've done 25 of them, but I'm 54. So I clearly didn't accomplish the first goal. And uh, at some point, I just decided to relax the, the date constraint. So I've done half, half the states. Uh, and I've had a great time doing it because my wife, Amy, and I usually make it a four or five day weekend and awesome. explore places that I would have never gone to Bismarck, North Dakota. 
if I hadn't Bismarck, North Dakota. I don't think I've I've been around the U.S., but I haven't been to Bismarck, North Dakota. <laughs> and you know, places big and small. I mean, you know, marathons like the Miami Marathon, which was a blast, and then I ran a marathon in Ashton, Idaho, which was uh, two hundred people. And, yeah, wow. Yeah, I like those great. ones the best, though. I I did a um a really fun. Well, I can say it's a fantastic run. It's called the Vermont Hundred. It's a hundred mile race, but I did the hundred k and. It's in the, um, oh God, it's in the Green Mountains part of Vermont, which is the main area in the summer. And it's stupidly hot. And there's about 100 people who turn up in tents. <laughs> but the feel of that, like, obviously, it's a bit mental running that distance. But the feel of that is just amazing. Like, so much community there. Yep. It's awesome. It's really cool. So what's your, what's your favorite run out of all the 25 you've done, which is the one that stands <laughs> I out? I, have, you got one? I don't think I have a favorite. Um, but I have some that were very memorable. Um, one of the very early ones I did was in Anchorage. My wife, Amy, grew up in Fairbanks, Alaska. And cool. we have a house in Homer, Alaska, and we spent some time there. And so uh, it was the Mayor's Midnight Sun Run, which was done on the summer solstice. And oh, awesome. it was also early in the, in the experience. So there was just a lot of kind of good feeling about it in the context of, of Alaska. Um, my personal worst you know, everybody that's an athlete talks about their personal. I know what you're talking about. I've got, a, I've got, a, I can't even choose mine. There's been many. I, well, my personal <laughs> worst was a couple of years ago in, in uh, Custer, uh, South Dakota. It was the Run Crazy Horse Marathon. And I did oh, it with cool. a group of friends. About a dozen of us did it. Uh, and the weather was, it was uh, rainy on the edge of snowing. Uh, it was right at the sort of early fall. So the weather was just crappy. And I got a, a calf cramp, which n almost never happens to me at about mile eight. And, you know, I worked it out. Uh, but then I ran the entire rest of it with like the feeling of somebody jabbing an eraser into the back of my calf every time, you know, I hit the ground. So, you know, for a couple of miles, it's not that big a deal. <laughs> but for no, 15, I know miles, I've had that too. And, you have uh, the niggle, you have that little niggle, you think, you know, I'm only you know, five miles into this thing or whatever else. And then all of a sudden that little tiny niggle Something turns that into gets like you, a sledgehammer. Right? Something that gets you. Well, <laughs> anyway, the end of this run, I ran it with a friend Mahendra and um, I'm, I'm not a fast runner. Typically a marathon for me is four and a half hours to five hours. And I've done some faster and some slower. And, you know, there was a lot of walking and a lot of hobbling and a lot of just moving slow on this one. And we come around the corner, you know, for the last, most marathons have like the last stretch for the last quarter of yeah. mile where you can see the time and it's raining and we're miserable and we've been out there for a long time and something got messed up with my watch. So I didn't really know exactly what the time was. And I looked up and I could see 5.58. And I, I said to my friend, my Andrea said, there is no fucking way this is going to be a six hour marathon. And we, you know, like arm in arm hobbling as fast as you can hobble. And uh, my wife has a photo of the, of the finish line, five fifty nine fifty nine. I mean, literally. Wow. You were what you you're jumping across the line. One of those, like, you know, as you're, you know, from a movie, just so hilarious. And, uh, but that was, I love that, that was a I mean, very running. <laughs> I mean, running, you know, it's, it's such a, I mean, I've done it for years now and it's such a, it's such an amazing thing just in terms of, being able to kind of escape sometimes and just be in your own mind. I, I, I can't, you know, so many problems that I've had in businesses or so many opportunities have been cracked on a long run. You know what I mean? Cause you could kind of get into a different zone, a different space. I it's, it's one of my favorite things to do. And I like to run alone. I'm, I'm very much a lone, a lone runner. Um, I used to think that when I ran, it was like meditation and yeah. a close friend of mine, Jerry Colonna, one day when I was saying something about that, said basically, you know, called BS on me and said, Brad, they're totally different things. They're both good, but they're totally different. And I said, all right, I'll try meditation. And he was right. And and I I now I'm a regular meditator. And I, I know uh, Jerry's been on the show. And oh, yes. uh, Jerry and I. All had, right. So so you've got we had a very we had a very powerful. In fact, it's one of it's one of the more popular episodes because we get deep in that. We didn't get into running, but we get pretty deep that's, as Jerry can do. That's Jerry. Like right away he gets into it. I love him. I love him. Great. Well, you're in good company here, man. And you know what? We're going to bore the listeners because all these guys with their seven, eight figure businesses and some in startup, they're saying, look at these two jokers talk about running. <laughs> right. So, you know, we better get on to the, the good stuff. <laughs> all righty. So Brad, listen, as I said, I haven't gone um, into the areas that you um, have expertise on in the show before, and I really want to get into it today. So before we go into, um, you know, some specific questions around, 
the whole startup, the investment cycles around that, the entrepreneurial community and the ecosystem that you're, we're going to go with. Let's just hear a bit about you. So, so firstly, how did you get into this space? What was the first thing and take us through the journey since that? Sure. The fast version of the journey is yeah. uh, I, I started a company when I was in college in 1987. Uh, it was self-funded. It was me, a partner, and my dad was involved in it as an advisor. Uh, we uh, built it as a cash flow positive business because we didn't raise any money. Uh, we yeah. sold it in 1993 to a public company. And I had never really thought about buying or selling a company up to that point. Um, that public company ended up doing a bunch of acquisitions and I ended up on the deal team as the technical guy in the deal team. So I learned about doing acquisitions from two guys, Len Fassler and Jerry Pock, who were extraordinary uh, at, at buying companies. I also took almost all of the money that I made from selling my, my first company, a couple million bucks, and I invested it between 1994 and 1996 uh, in about 40 internet-related companies. So at the very beginning of the rise of the commercial internet, I was writing twenty-five dollars and $50,000 checks as, a, as, a seed as an angel investor at the very beginning. Uh, I helped start a couple of companies. Uh, several of those companies became very large. A couple of them succeeded, a couple of them failed. Uh, I learned a very important thing as an angel investor in that time period, though. And I learned the difference between zero times your money and 100 times your money. If you look at those 40 companies that I invested in, probably half of them failed and were zeros. Three of those 40, uh, each of them were worth at least 100 times what I invested. And so if the other 37 of the 40 companies had failed, I still made roughly three times my money uh, invested because of the, well, actually 300 over 40, right? Uh, uh, no, I get it. And I don't, you know, what I don't want to do tonight is break your story up too much, but you know what I have to, Go for it. <laughs> if that's all right. Cause, cause you know, I reckon you're going to, you're going to put some stuff down here, which I just need to drill into. So first question I've got for you, right. Is, and cause I see this quite a lot. So 40 investments and three of them, as you said, return a crazy return, really a powerful return. And there's going to be something in there that returns something and then a lot that didn't do anything. How do you choose? I mean, particularly at that stage, was it just spread betting or, you know, because obviously no. you've got much more sophisticated now, but back then. I'm not sure I'm actually that much more sophisticated now, having gone through lots <laughs> of arcs. When I reflect on those 40 investments, I was focused on two things. I was focused on the people and the product. I picked a domain that I knew, which was primarily software and internet. Um, I didn't invest in a bunch of things outside that, right? So I wasn't okay. investing in restaurants and I wasn't investing in food companies and I wasn't investing in uh, companies that made industrial equipment and I wasn't investing in services businesses. Uh, 1994 to 96, my, my view was the internet is gonna be this huge thing and I put most of the investments in that. Every now and then I do a software related investment that didn't have anything to do with the internet. But so I had a, a theme, I constrained my world. And then I focused on the people. Did I want to be partners with them? Um, how did I respond to them? What did I think about what they were doing? Remember, we're at the very beginning of the business. So like, who knows whether it's gonna turn into anything or not. So that character and that interaction mattered a lot. And then the other thing I focused on was the product. And I couldn't have described this then. As I fast forward, you know, 25 years later, uh, at Foundry Group, we have, which is the venture firm I'm part of, we have a set of themes. And if the company is outside those themes, we don't engage. If it's in those themes, then we focus on three things. One is, do we have affinity for the product? It's not that we have to be daily users of it, but we have to care about the product. And the reason for this is, when everything's going good, it doesn't matter. But when things get all screwed up, if you don't care about the product as an investor, you can't stay in there and do the work. And, and like you actually have to have some affinity. You know, I've invested in so many things where I just didn't care about the product. And when they went off the rails, it's like, okay, whatever. Versus I, I believe this product should work. I believe this company should work. And even if it ends up failing, you're still engaged. The second uh, is something that uh, I refer to as looking for entrepreneurs and founders who are obsessed with what they're doing. Not passionate, because it's super easy to fake passion. I want people who were put on this planet to work on this thing. And you know, the definition of obsession, and of course the word obsession has some negative connotations, um, but it's, it's someone who is not saying, 
you know, I just want to be an entrepreneur and it could be any product or, you know, I want to change the world, but I can't define what I actually care about. It has to be a person that's really clear what they're doing and why they're doing it. And then the third characteristic is that they want us to be partners with them as much as we want to be partners. This is part of the evaluation of each other and the belief that once, you know, one, once I make an investment, I'm your business partner. And if really you don't want me to be your business partner or you're not enthusiastic about it, there's probably somebody else that's a better investor than me for you. Uh, but if you really want to be partners with me and I really want to be partners with you, that makes all the difference in the world in the ups and the downs. Yeah, no, I love that. Particularly the last piece, because I think that's a bit that gets misconstrued a lot. And I see a lot of people who are, you know, the psychology, if you like, is, listen, I need money and I'm going to take money from anyone. Um, I'm obviously painting the blackest possible picture here, but I get involved up the chain a bit in businesses where, I mean, there's been two actually in the last 12 months where I've had to go in there and, and restructure the whole cap table, find different investment because there's a massive fallout because, you know, for the reasons that you've just described. That's right. And, and look, it, 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 it is part of the long arc of the business, right? Not just early at the generative stages, the importance of your partners. But, you know, if, if uh, a company comes to you and as you described, you know, they've got a whole bunch of issues in their investor base and a lot of conflict between the founders and the investors. Well, not only do you have to do some cleanup work if you're going to buy that company, but that company probably was not as successful as it could have been. And yeah, they're, fo they're focused internally on, on matters that are not external and customer and things like that and market driven. The business. Yeah. Can I ask you out of, out of, I mean, if you can say out of those early investments, which is the one that was the most successful or is it hard to pick that? Well, there's a couple, I mean, uh, you know, the, some of the ones that, that had this uh, uh, huge outcome, I'll describe one of them, which was really a fun one, which is a company called harmonics. Okay. And I, it was the fourth or fifth company that I, I invested on in this, this path. Harmonics is the team uh, that invented and created Guitar Hero oh, and wow. uh, created Rock Band uh, yeah. and then subsequently created Dance Central. And it was two founders, uh, Alex Rigopoulos and Rana Gozi, both MIT guys, both technologists who love music. And their vision was to create sort of the combination of video games and music, to make, make uh, music-based video games. And they really created the category uh, oh, Guitar Hero, I remember many a, many a drunken night around friends' houses until two in the morning trying to beat that thing. Right. <laughs> and look, it created a whole category that now, you know, they're called music and rhythm video games. But, you know, at the time when they started the company in 1990, uh, probably 1994, it's like, you know, you're playing with a joystick, uh, you know, against a song and like it's on a little screen. Like, you know, it doesn't quite get you where you need to go. But you, you can see the potential for it. So these guys were obsessed. Like this was their world. Um, and they tried to go out of business every year for 10 years. And I don't know if you're a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy fan uh, or if any of your listeners. I have seen many an episode. I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm like, you know, Star Wars is more my thing, but you know. Hey. Well, there was a character in, in very early in, in one of the very, in the first book that Doug, Douglas Adams wrote called Zaphod Beeblebrox. And, okay, and, yes, I and, remember. And Zaphod Beeblebrox was kind of crazy and always a little a drunk and loony, and, and, but a powerful archetype of a character. And he says, the way you fly is you throw yourself at the ground and miss. Just throw yourself at the ground as hard as you can and miss. And that's what these guys did. Every year they tried their hardest to go out of business and they weren't able to. They'd always like come up with a new video game contract or something would happen or they'd raise a little money. They never raised very much money. I think total they raised about 10 million bucks over a decade. And then a decade after they started this business, they came out with Guitar Hero and they sold out the worldwide supply of what they manufactured in 24 hours. Uh, and of course, it was then a huge success and created the first uh, uh, of what they have now done three multi-billion dollar franchises. All three of those products that I named were, were billion dollar franchises. Um, the experience as an investor was also a very, very fascinating one because, you know, it was my fifth investment. I was still friends with Alex and Iran, but I, you know, I interacted with them, but I was an angel investor, right? And they call me every now and then. And once a year, I get a letter in the mail. Hey, we didn't go out of business again this year. And um, when Guitar Hero <laughs> be hit, it was like, holy smokes. Like, what, where, what is this? They then got bought by Viacom. 
and you know, just the initial purchase was hugely uh, lucrative, but they structured in the deal and earnout. And the next two years, they had incredible success. And the earnout that they earned probably dwarfed the initial payout by about three times. So you got X and then you got another three X in the earnout, except for Viacom didn't want to pay the earnout. And so well, that always happens. I mean, I can tell you from the private equity right. side, because I was going in there as the chief exec of these turnarounds. And I used to do the deal where I'd be saying, okay, you paid this for the business. I've come in, it's now worth this. You're going to pay me a, a, a really chunky upside just to get it back above water. And then we'll talk about the growth play. Because a lot of them would go, oh yeah, you'll get some equity. Yeah, but the equity is worth nothing, right? It's, you know, you've stuffed it up, guys. Right. So, well, in <laughs> so I know that world very well. It's another world. So in this particular case, uh, it took seven years uh, to settle the lawsuit about the earnout, at which the end Viacom was, was, you know, Viacom was wrong. The company was completely right. And so it had this huge extra payout seven more years later. Right. So, as, as an investor on this, just just for everybody who's listening on this, because I've got some people who are investors as well, or have sold companies and now want to move into this world, how would you normally structure a deal like that from the investment side? Are you also sticking around for the earnout piece, or is there a point where you get all your money back in the first well, tranche we, of that? We end? stuck around for the earnout. So the deal was structured that uh, there were again, it didn't raise a lot of capital, so it had you know preferred and common stock in the transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, the initial transaction was was uh, meaningful enough that the preference of the preferred stock didn't matter. So everybody got paid on an as converted to common basis. So, you know, whatever my investment was when I converted to common shares, that's how much of the payout I, I owned. But then I owned that percentage of the earnout. And, oh, you know, okay, management nice. had a separate incentive, you know, that they had as part of their employment contracts that was meaningful, but it wasn't anywhere close to the potential of the earnout. And all the shareholders uh, participate in that. And that's, you know, in, in deals today, which is different probably than 15 years ago, uh, but now most of the time, you know, if you see a company that's bought for, let's just pick a round number, 100 million bucks, uh, you know, by whether it's a private equity firm or whether it's a public company, um, of that 100 million bucks, probably 90 uh, million goes to the cap table. And mm-hmm. 10 million is retention incentive uh, for the team and the employees. So sort of the normative thing that happens now is there's about, it's really a $90 million deal from the shareholder perspective with a $10 million retention piece. You know, but, Got it. Yeah, because you don't expect necessarily, I mean, there's a piece there where you're not, you know, a, a, there's a fair bit of money that you've made through that first part of it anyway, but there's not an expectation on that last piece really. No, and, and the retention is vests vest and is earned over a period of time. Yeah. And is rarely performance-based anymore. Now it's usually, if you're here at the end of a year, you get this. If you're here at the end of year two, you get this. Separately, some deals occasionally uh, will have an earnout piece. But generally speaking, I think most buyers recognize that um, uh, earnouts create uh, disincentives a lot of times that aren't very equitable. And most investors are very suspicious of earnouts because most of the time the earnouts don't pay right, for a variety of reasons, including you don't have control over the company anymore after somebody else buys it. And yet, you know, that whole dynamic of, well, no, I, have- I always advise businesses. I mean, I, I tend to get involved in, in the last stages of a business then before sale to private equity. So I'll either be brought in by companies like yours, investors like yours to kind of, you know, get the business ready in the last 12 months leading up. Um, and just to manage that process, having sat on the PE side of the table, particularly to sort of make sure that the founders um, are ready for that as best they can be. And I always advise, I say, listen, you know, don't expect to get a massive amount on the second piece of this. I I mean, I think in the, you know, the hundreds of deals, sales of companies I've been involved in probably, you know, less than less than a half dozen have had earnouts, And of those earnouts, probably, I mean, the harmonics one was spectacularly successful. The vast majority of them, uh, the other ones that I can that come to mind as I'm thinking about it, were you know somewhere between getting zero of the earnout and maybe 25% of the earnout. So I yeah, agree. Cool. Like you know, the the seller's view should be this is the economic value at sale. Yeah, indeed. Listen, but I've cut your your story off so much now. One last question though, because because I want to go back to what you said. Um, when you said you, know, the, you look for people who are obsessed, and I get that, I think that's really powerful. 
Is there anything else, any other characteristic or attributes that you look for as well? Or is it really just this relentless drive to make this work? I think it's more that. Like there's a bunch of things underneath that. And remember the linkage of affinity for what they're doing Mm -hmm. and their desire to work with us as much as we want to work with them. Like a lot of stuff comes from that. It's very qualitative though. Um, And it's one that uh, has relatively little to do with the person's background. I think this is a mistake a lot of investors make. Um, And and we've tried hard uh, to not uh, be biased by it. You have this sort of chronic, and I think by the way, it's one of the dynamics and drivers of inequity uh, right now, both in gender and, and, and race, certainly in entrepreneurial companies that are funded and also the networks that are created around them, is you have a lot of investors who say, I'm looking for a founder that looks like X. And there was a thing that went around, uh, I don't know, seven or eight years ago that was, I found it pretty gross and, and very limiting as a number of very successful VCs started to say things like, you know, we're looking for a founder that looks like Mark Zuckerberg. And nothing wrong. You're joking. That wasn't just some sort of weird PR stunt. No, nothing, nothing wrong really? with being Mark Zuckerberg, but several very well-known uh, investors basically, you know, in that statement, right, expressed extreme ageism, extreme gender, gender bias. Um, and also basically were saying, you know, on one hand, you know, the people that we're hiring for our venture firms, we want them to go to Harvard, Stanford, MIT, you know, but we're looking for an entrepreneur who went to Harvard but dropped out. And there's this kind of this interesting, you know, interesting dynamic where it then got linked. Again, nothing wrong with being Mark Zuckerberg as an entrepreneur, but saying that that's the archetype that you're looking for. Yeah, well, it's more stereotype, isn't it? It's kind of thinking that if someone is like this person, they have a similar background, then, you know, there's another that's right. unicorn no, in play. No correlation between that person's background. And so, you know, for, for, for me and for, for my partners, we, do, we don't care about educational background. We're not, you know, we're not filtering on that. We're trying not to filter at all on gender or race. This is a very exposing thing, though, when you realize that your networks are reflective of you. And so if your yeah. networks are ones, you know, that are primarily people, you know, who are, who are white male, the predominant number of your investments are going to be in people who are white male. So it, it reinforces the power, especially as an early stage investor, of building um, broader and diverse networks rather than networks that are self-reflecting. And so this then, just to your question, becomes important is, all right, um, when you're interacting with someone who is not the same gender as you, who is not the same race as you, who does not have the same socioeconomic background that you have, who does not have the same education background that you have, what are, what of your own biases are getting in your way of the evaluation of that potential entrepreneur? And so this, I think, comes back to the obsession and and um, affinity for the product. Because if I don't have affinity for the product, it doesn't matter anything else. If I have affinity for the product and the person's obsessed, the other characteristics don't matter that much, right? And so it gets rid of those other characteristics as the primary filter. No, I get that. What about, what about if, um, and I'm going to say this um, gently, what about dickheads? Um, <laughs> and what I mean by that is, I mean, we, we in our company sit across, we're part of an early stage um, incubator, if you like, and we, we sit there and we sit in these kind of pitch fests and things, whatever else. And there was a guy who came in this week and said, you know, literally what a lot of them say is, you know, this, is, this in three years is going to be a billion um, dollar company. Right. And you sit there and say, listen, that's not impressive, mate. Seriously. You know, you're sitting here, you know, there's a lot of bravado and I get it could be sometimes intimidating to pitch. So I'm taking all that into context, but there was a certain arrogance here. I love, I love the passion. Don't get me wrong, but there's a certain arrogance here. How do you play that in? Do you, do you still think you, is that, is that part of the game? You want someone with confidence because they're going to have the metal to drive this through. How does that play through? Uh, not, I'm not sure that that's a characteristic that I index on. I think if you roll back to the conversation that you had with Jerry Colonna, my guess is somewhere in the conversation, you know, the reboot formula came up, which is uh, practical skills development plus radical self-inquiry. And, you know, did, yes. we are looking for people um, who, are, who are interested in learning, interested in growing, want to develop, you know, are constantly curious about what they're doing. And at the same time, 
uh, have a radical self-inquiry, are very interested in understanding themselves better, have humility, understand that they will make lots of mistakes. Um, when they make mistakes, uh, understand that we will make lots of mistakes. When you make mistakes, you own them and you learn from them. And in fact, my view of, of creating an entrepreneurial company is that it's a constant series of experiments, many of which fail. And when yep. they fail, you learn from them. And when the experiments, and then you repeat a different experiment. When the experiment succeeds, you do more experiments. And, you know, I didn't come up with that. I think that comes from the legacy of uh, Eric Reese, which comes from the legacy of, of uh, Steve Blank and the whole notion of customer-driven development and lean startup. But fundamentally, you know, the entrepreneur who shows up and says, I know the answer and this is what it's going to be. And I'm the one that's going to create this. Nice confidence, but... Uh, what don't you know? Yeah. What could, well, that was that was a nice, eloquent way of, of summarizing what I meant by that. <laughs> well, you know, when, when the person, when when I ask the person, what could go wrong, and they say nothing, I'm totally confident this is going to work. All right, nice to meet you. See you later. Right. When if the person shows up and says, I have, I don't think this is going to work. I have no confidence in it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Well, that's not interesting. And I've yet to meet a venture capitalist, by the way, who invested in a company. And when you said uh, to them right after they invest in the company. Uh, hey, what do you think of the company? The VC said, well, it's a piece of shit and I hate the founder and I think he's a jerk and I can't stand the idea here, but I invested anyway. That doesn't happen. Like every time an investor invests, you know, she thinks the business is going to be hugely successful. Uh, I think the business is going to be hugely successful. And by the way, as an early stage investor, most of the investments are not going to be hugely successful every now and then. No, well, you've said that the strike rate's incredible. I mean, you know, but that's the thing that I find interesting about the VC world versus the PE world, if we if we play with that for a sec, because, you know, there is this piece, I mean, what is the percentage now? I mean, if, if, if you think about a, a typical VC um, firm investing in X number of businesses, what percentage or number of that would they expect to be successful to kind of get to a decent return? I think it, I think it varies by firm because a lot of firms have different yeah. strategies. And I'll, I'll just lay out two, uh, 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 two things. One is sort of a general conceptual rule and then all just data from our own experience. The, the general conceptual rule, you know, which is now a cliche is the power law, which is one or two companies drive the results of your portfolio. So if you have a portfolio of 20 to 30 companies, uh, which is kind of the typical portfolio construction for most VC firms, sometimes a little bit less, sometimes a little bit more, you know, one or two of them are going to be the ones that drive all the outcomes. A number of them will have positive outcomes, but they won't be that significant. 2x, 3x, 5x, like it adds, but it's not the thing that's really going to return the fund or return the fund three times over. That's going to be those one or two companies. And then a bunch are not going to be successful. Our experience in our funds is that generally um, we have somewhere between, uh, I would say, four and eight out of 30, because we usually have about 30 companies per, 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 per fund. Yep. I say I was three or four is probably the low end number across all the different funds to eight is probably the high end number. Maybe 10 is the highest we've ever had of companies that had meaningful economic returns. Um, and again, an early stage venture, a meaningful economic return is probably at least five times your money. And uh, again, depends on the stage at the very early stages, maybe it's even 10 times your money at the later stages. It's kind of three to five times your money. And, and that's interesting because I think you can have strategies where your companies, instead of going after that one enormous outcome, you know, you're counting on, you know, three or four big two enormous outcomes. In our first fund, just as an example, um, the, uh, I think we had eight companies that we would consider out of, again, 30 to have meaningful economic outcomes. And we had three investments that returned at least the fund. And uh, those three investments, you know, you do the math against that. So with those three out of the 30, with 10% of our fund, you know, we tripled the value of the fund. Um, that's, that's a- That was your first, that was your first that fund. That was the first fund. That's a good fund. It's great. Right? Wow. Sort of that, that dynamic is the way to think about it, which is, it's not that you've got to get of the 30 companies, you've got to get 24 of them to be successes, but it's also not that 29 of them can be zeros. Like, you know, by the way, if 29 of them are zeros, it's a really unsatisfying business, right? Well, yeah, you're dealing with, as you said beforehand, you're dealing with lots of problems all the time. And, and you know, that's not, that's not fun in terms of the energy levels we are doing as well. You want to balance. And as an yeah. investor, look, if you make 10 investments in a row and all 10 of them fail, 
you know, you, you're going to get, you're going to be burnt out. You're not going to do it anymore, or you might not be a good investor. Uh, if you believe that all 10 of them are going to be successful, A, you're fantasizing, and B, you're actually probably not taking enough risk because you're not pressing on areas yeah. of things that could have breakthrough potential. And you're also not learning much if everything is just kind of working in, you know, in a good but not great way. Have you personally found as you've, as you've done more investments that your skill in this area has improved in terms of identification or is it still, you know, similar statistics as we were just talking about? I don't know. I don't know that. Um, I don't know how to answer the question. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, different challenges and I'll give an example of why I don't think I can answer the question. Um, a confirmation bias is a very powerful thing. Uh, I was an early investor in Fitbit and, and we were early investors in Fitbit, which was massively successful. Um, I then had confirmation bias on a couple of other companies that had similar characteristics to Fitbit that including the characteristics to Fitbit also had some of the same struggles. And the confirmation bias was, well, I knew how to navigate through them and I was able to navigate through them at this moment in time with this leadership team in this market I can with you know I can figure that out again with a leadership team and we can navigate through, and you know there's one in particular that uh, followed that I allowed that confirmation bias to result in us investing too much money in a company that ultimately didn't work, and right, and so you know could that company have worked, maybe, could it have failed with a lot less money? Yes, for sure. Right, and we could have cut it off, but my own confirmation bias got in my way. And I think that's an important thing for every investor to constantly be learning from their own mistakes. And, you know, having done this now for a long time, I mean, one of, one of my favorite lines is, damn it, I'm only gonna make, make that mistake three more times, right? Like, uh, or I'm not gonna make that mistake a fourth time. It, it, it's no matter how clear it is in the moment, there's enough things that are different in the well, no, this is, you've answered the question extremely well, I think, because the dynamics, I, I say this some, sometimes to, um, to businesses I work with, you know, they may have a, a proposition that was relevant at the beginning of 2020, but particularly in 2020, by the end of the year, it may not even be relevant at all. You see what I mean? So what's happened there is the market conditions have changed. Okay, we're talking about a very you know, demonstrable situation now with the whole COVID pandemic. But the point being is that can happen anyway. And so you've got this idea that, that what was good at the beginning might not be good at the end. And that's, that's a market change. It's a dynamic which is different to the categories and things that we spoke about at the beginning. So Very much. I mean, you're, the example actually is, is better than uh, just laying up against a time frame because it also mm. works the opposite direction, right? At the beginning of 2020, if somebody had said to you uh, in January, I think that by the end of, you know, sometime in August, the vast majority of office-based workers will be working from home and will have been doing around the world and will have been doing that for the last three months. You would have said, uh, uh-uh, no fucking way. I wouldn't have got decent odds on that. Well, actually I would have got great odds on it. Sorry. And <laughs> you got great odds, but you wouldn't have taken the bet. Um, I wouldn't have taken the bet. No, I'm not. Here's another one, right? Uh, if you were investing in telemedicine and you've been investing in telemedicine for businesses until 2020, you're incredibly frustrated. It, it's it's like it's so obvious as an investor in telemedicine that this should be the way that medicine is delivered and that you interact with your doctor and and yet the incumbent behaviors of insurance companies doctors hospitals and even patients um and the whole infrastructure the fact that doctors have offices and they pay rent and uh you know and they have affiliation with hospital groups and all of that stuff like that incumbent behavior inhibited telemedicine in four weeks in the United States, I don't know about in the, in, in the UK, but in four weeks in the United States, telemedicine made 10 years of progress. It had nothing to do with technology, had nothing to do with the deployment of it, had nothing to do with the usability of it. The federal government said, okay, all these HIPAA requirements around telemedicine applications and using video, out the window, don't worry about it. Number two, by the way, if you wanna do telemedicine, you can't go to the hospital for elective surgery right now. So go ahead, hospitals, bill insurance for that. The insurance company said, ah, I don't want to, that doesn't work. But you know what? Just do it. And the hospital said, fuck it. We just need to take care of our patients. 
And we don't want them coming to the emergency room right now if they've got a sore throat because they probably don't have COVID if they have a sore throat. And certainly if somebody hurts themselves but isn't like bleeding to death, I don't want them in the hospital. Doctors, please use that. And you had a whole bunch of doctors who are all of a sudden sitting at home because they aren't needed in the context of the hospital system right now because they're not emergency room doctors or they're not dealing with the subspecialties around COVID. So they're sitting at home going, I'm not making any money. And so like the whole dynamics around that, whether consciously or not shifted, that happens continually. I, I, I put that, that happens continually in every market segment. Um, in the United States, there are huge numbers of people who will never go shopping in a grocery store, inside a grocery store again. A grocery store, you know, in the U.S., we have these gigantic, I know you have some in, in London now, but you used to have corner stores in London. In the U.S., yeah. everything is a gigantic warehouse of food. They're just food warehouses. They're distribution points for food. And the whole economic model of a distribution point for food for so long has been, well, you go to the food distribution point and you go pick up your food. Well, now you type in on your smartphone what you want and somebody either brings it to you or you drive your car through and somebody puts it in the back of your car. If I'm a consumer, how much money will I pay to get all that time back from not having to go to the food warehouse anymore? Because I don't know too many people who enjoyed grocery shopping. Now, there's a you know, real inequality dynamics around that, plus then the dynamics of how you get food to different places. But all of a sudden, these things change in such dramatic ways that a lot of the assumptions that one would have about a business at the early stage either go strong positive or strong negative. Another thing that's happening that just sort of plays on the back of that is when things go strong positive because of the amount of uh, uh, investment dollars looking for risk and the democratization of entrepreneurship around the world now, there's an enormous number of companies that appear that suddenly start doing something like that. That has a counter effect, which is one of the things you're trying to do as a startup is create some defensibility from other people. If your business isn't fundamentally defensible, that's not nearly as compelling. So you have this very interesting endless dance. And you know, I, I describe it uh, you know, in a lot of the work I do as a complex system where you don't have a deterministic outcome. Like you can't predict, I'm on day one, and on day 237, it's going to look like this. And on day 1,214, it looks like this. But what you're constantly no, having absolutely. to do is deal with those feedback loops. Back to your fundamentals of, of, you know, where we started this conversation this evening around how do you select these things, right? You know, you've got more or potentially more choice. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the ratio of startups in North America right now? I mean, how many are launching per month? Oh, I don't know. It's a ridiculous number. And it's it, got to be a crazy figure. I mean, it's got to be exponential over the last, you know, 20 years. And because of the economic crisis that we're having, um, that number almost by definition will dramatically increase because when people are out of work and mm -hmm. get redeployed, yep. they start creating companies. I think it's a lot of sort of mis mystery in the world about counting this stuff. And, you know, there's regular articles that the rate of entrepreneurship is decreasing or this or that. And one of the things I've learned over time is the, is the measuring the number of things is not interesting. The thing that's interesting is the interaction between the things. So instead of worrying about in your city, how many companies are getting created or how much venture capital is being invested or how many unicorns there are, or how many companies are going public. What you're looking for is the interaction between all of the entrepreneurs, the interaction amongst all the participants in the startup community and the vibrancy of that activity coming out of any sort of economic dislocation is generally off the charts because you have a lot of people who are resetting their views on what is important to them and what they want to do and accomplish. And from that emerges a lot of innovation and entrepreneurship. Cause this is, I mean, let's, let's touch on your book. Cause I said, you know, my, I've been so captivated by the um, conversation tonight. I could have kept this going for hours. Right. Um, but I want to, cause you've covered so much already. I hate telling my story. So you did a good job of cutting me off early. And actually we talked about a bunch of interesting shit instead of me uh, narrating. Well, you know what, you know what, I, I, I got it. I, I, 
I, I kind of got it already because I read it beforehand, <laughs> right? So I, I, I know I knew about the thematic investing and all that. So I knew all about that, right? Because I'd already done my research. So I, I kind of I got the Guitar Hero, I got the Fitbit, and I wanted you to say those two. So that's good. <laughs> <laughs> because you know there's lots of you've been involved in lots and i don't want to dumb that down and, and dismiss it in any way shape or form but for the people listening to this you know they're, they're seeing a guy who's got a heap of experience in this space and just by that last 20 minutes of chatting there's so many different dynamics and so many different insights that you've shared which is really powerful that's why that's why i was so excited about having this conversation but let's let's i mean you're starting to touch on the book here a bit now as well because i want to understand the entrepreneurial ecosystem piece that you're describing um, the networks, the connections, because how, how do you see that? And, and how do you see that in terms of both the opportunity that presents and kind of the dynamic that it presents certainly to the, to the world, the world of business and, and broader? The history over the last decade is useful because an enormous amount has happened uh, around this. Uh, in 2012, I came out with a book called Startup Communities. And at, in 2012, that phrase didn't exist. And what it, uh, where it emerged from was my experience thinking about what had happened in Boulder, Colorado, coming out of the global financial crisis and sort of moving through the global financial crisis. Techstars, uh, uh, which I co-founded uh, with, with three other people, was started in 2006. So sort of at the very beginning uh, of Web 2.0 and sort of the next iteration, you know, the mobile phone, the iPhone launched uh, another layer of connectivity. Foundry Group was started in 2007, but then we immediately went into the teeth of the global financial crisis from 2008 to 2010. 2010, 2011, uh, across the globe, we were starting to talk about uh, how entrepreneurship is going to be, and innovation is gonna be the way out of the global financial crisis. And even in that moment in time, there was still a, a narrative that people had, which is if you really wanted to start a company, you needed to move to the Bay Area. And, you know, occasionally, yep. you, you know, other cities would <laughs> pop up, but there was that, that sort of focus on that. And now I, I've been living in Boulder since 1995, and I came up with something I called the Boulder Thesis, which was my lessons from Boulder around what we had been doing since 1995, that by 2012 had generated a startup community that was known around the world. And people talked about Boulder as an example of a small city right? It's only 100,000 people that could build a, a significant amount of entrepreneurial activity. Um, I had a very strong sense uh, and, and, and belief when I wrote the book that uh, you moved somewhere and to build your life around it rather than move somewhere for an opportunity. So my wife, Amy Batchelor and I had moved to Colorado in 1995 from Boston we knew one person and he moved away six months later. So we didn't move to Boulder for business. We didn't move to Boulder for an opportunity. We just wanted to build our life here. And you know, our view was if we didn't like it, we'd move away. And six months in, we're like, yep, this is home. We're here for the duration. So when I wrote that book, I made the assertion that not only could every city in the world that had at least 100,000 people have a vibrant startup community, I thought it was imperative that every city in the world that had at least 100,000 people created a vibrant startup community as part of the fabric of the city. And it was a very place-based uh, sort of frame of reference with this idea, I used it earlier, of democratizing uh, entrepreneurship globally. Like the idea that you should be able to anywhere in the world have vibrancy around entrepreneurship and creating companies, especially with the internet as the vehicle of communication, you know, in 1987, when I started my first company, if I wanted to learn about entrepreneurship, you know, I read like Lee Iacocca's autobiography, right? You know, you, you, that wasn't really entrepreneurship. That was learning about a super successful business person. Today, you know, the amount of content that's available, if you're interested in entrepreneurship is overwhelming in a good way. So if you wind the clock forward to 2017, when I started working on the new book, The Startup Community Way, with Ian Hathaway, my co-author, we started working on answering the question, what now? Uh, you know, I've been at this for, people would say, I've been at this for a couple of years. What should I do next in the context of building and developing startup communities? And we went very, very deep. It took us a while to find our footing about what we wanted to do, but we eventually identified uh, the metaphor for startup communities, which is co a complex adaptive system. And uh, for people that don't know complexity theory, uh, in 60 seconds, uh, I can explain the difference between systems. A simple system is making a cup of coffee. 
you put beans in, you get coffee out. It's deterministic. It's got a couple of moves. The coffee might not be good, and there's different beans that you can put in, and there's different machines you can use, but there's a process that's very well defined. It's simple. A complicated system is a system that has a deterministic outcome, but it's got a lot more steps, and the steps might not have to go in the same order. Um, an interesting example uh, for business of, of a complicated system is doing your monthly financial statements. At the end, you get financial statements. <laughs> and anybody who's been in business knows a cash flow statement, income statement, balance sheet. And notwithstanding the fact that the accounting rules change continually, um, you know, those things are the outputs. And the process is- I, I prefer the coffee process. It's a much easier process. And much I like that. By the way, making, <laughs> making a Boeing airplane is a complicated system. Designing it and figuring it out you know, it's very hard and takes a while. There's a lot of interdependencies, aren't there? There's lots of things that need to connect and, and right. come together. And there's also... But, but once you've got the recipe, once you've got the playbook for a Boeing 7, you know, 87, you just build one. Raising a child is a complex system. If you tell that child when they're born that this is what's going to happen when they're five and this is what's going to happen when they're 10, and this is what they're going to do when they're 21 and this is where they're going to live and this is who they're going to marry and this is the school they're going to be... At the minimum, what you've done is you've generated an immense need for therapy for that child. Um, and depending on, <laughs> depending on what happens, you know, the child's probably going to do almost the opposite of many of those things. So, you know, what happens at every step along the way feeds into what happens next. And that's yeah, how right. a startup community develops. The important point there, and you talked about interdependency, the parts are not the important thing in the startup community. It's the interaction between the parts. That's got it. So the parts exist, but, but I, I get it. The dynamics between them. And the yeah. dynamics between the parts cause new things to happen and new parts to emerge and new cycles to work. And even the language, by the way, of COVID uh, and a pandemic, right, of uh, emergence, uh, of contagion, right? These are words from complex systems. The idea that you have a nonlinear system, it doesn't just sort of poke along. You know, anybody who studied anything about COVID knows that the curves around infection generally are geometric or exponential curves, that there's a time delay. You can have, you know, five to 10 days uh, without being symptomatic. And, you know, everybody says, oh, well, more people have COVID, but, but not more people are dying. We'll give it 30 more days because the death curve will catch up with the infection curve. So this interaction is so important. So we wrote this book with the idea, again, of helping people understand how startup communities now evolve. The first book did a really good job of explaining like, here's your thesis that you need to execute a startup community. But as it's going, how can you then help it evolve? Uh, and because I mean, I haven't read the book. The book's coming out, I believe, in um, a few weeks time, 14th of September, I believe. I don't know what the London date is. The, in the US, it's, yeah. it's out in the US. It's out in the US, yeah. 14th of, um, yeah, 14th of September, it's coming out here in the UK. But, but, just as the practicality they've got, they've got it translated from english to english like it's really quite well i mean i i haven't even got it on the kindle edition i haven't got it you know i haven't it's not there right in the middle. but the point is i mean is this is this a way of helping navigate the ecosystem by understanding how it works or is that something that's actually just really impossible because yeah. of what you just described yeah, i think it's a good word uh, there's an element of that and we define very clearly the, the difference in the book between a startup community and an entrepreneurial ecosystem and i think this is an important thing, and I'll give several examples here in rapid fire. Uh, the goal of a startup community is to help entrepreneurs succeed. Yeah. That's the goal. The entrepreneurial ecosystem, which often has a bunch of other actors in it, right? University, government, nonprofits, investors. Well, the startup community is at the center of that, and those institutions, those organizations may also contribute to the goal of helping entrepreneurs succeed. They have other motivations as well. So the entrepreneurial ecosystem has motivations beyond just that of the startup community. And it's important to orient your activity in the right way, depending on what you're focused on. And a mistake I think a lot of um, entrepreneurial ecosystems do make is that they conflate what the goals are and as a result, lose track of the underlying goal of helping entrepreneurs succeed. One other quick example from the book that sort of talks to that is a chapter we call the measurement trap. And the measurement trap is, you know, the problem that all human beings fall into, which is we're programmed that 
we need to me measure everything. And you know, the business cliche, if you don't measure it, you can't manage it, uh, which really should be, if you don't measure the right stuff, you can't manage it. And in startup communities and entrepreneurial ecosystems, people tend to measure the easy things, not the important things. The easy things would be number of jobs created, number of dollars raised, number of companies created, dollar values of exits. Okay, they're interesting, but they're easy and they're not actually the essential thing. Because remember, the key is the interactions. So how do you measure not just the number of interactions, but the value of those interactions? And how do you change, measuring it's very hard, but then how do you actually put a weighting on which of those values actually mean anything? And what do those interactions then result in anything being interesting? Has anyone done that or tried to do that? There, in the book, we give some examples of better approaches to measurement. Um, yeah. One organization that's a global organization that I think has done an excellent job with this is Endeavor, Endeavor Global. Mm -hmm. And you know, they've done a number of research studies with market maps that actually look pretty carefully at the interactions between all of the entrepreneurs in a geography. And those market maps are dynamic. So you start to see who is having influence where and how that influence actually plays into the evolution and development of the startup community. So what's, what's your goal ultimately with this book? I continue to believe the thing I believed in 2012. And I think it's even more important today. Uh, we are having another massive dislocation as a species because mm -hmm. of the COVID crisis. Um, you know, the collision of the health crisis, the economic crisis, a mental health crisis, which comes from our way of dealing and adjusting with this different reality that we're trying to deal with. And also in the U.S., obviously, resurgence of a racial equity crisis, which has been going on since the beginning of the U.S. Um, but in the collision of this is another, another dynamic and another factor. I believe that innovation and entrepreneurship is a powerful force for good um, as our species. And I think it's something that should be available as broadly as possible throughout the world. Um, helping provide additional support for people to understand constructive behaviors, for having a framework and a model for how to think about it and for how to apply that at both a macro and a micro level, right? Within their communities, within their places. The, re the reason I'm laughing, Brad, is you've almost defined word for word my kind of vision for why I do what I do. Almost, almost, as I, I even use some of the same words. Awesome. Well, I didn't listen. That's to nice. The I like that. Well, that's cool. That's good. So we're aligned. That so was, we that was well, you know, hey, listen. Again, you know, right? not, not, so I just validated you, which is great. Well, I mean, it's, it's brilliant. But I say it all the time because, that, but I, I had an epiphany once. I was running um, a, a marathon in South Africa. It's the Comrades um, Ultra Marathon, 87 kilometers. Oh, comrades, that's a serious race. Yeah. And I've shared this story a few times, so I won't go into it too much. But halfway through that race, when it's like 34 degrees Celsius and you're running up a hill, pretty much, um, and you've done a marathon, you hit the World Vision Camps. So you hit essentially all the orphan children and they're lined up along a fence and they've got nothing. I mean, literally their, their clothes are dirty. They've got, you know, they're mal malnourished, but they're all smiling away. And, and I, and my sort of thing about, you know, entrepreneurship as a force for good is, is there's a thing here where change can happen through entrepreneurship. If it's, if it's, if it's positioned the right way, if it's supported the right way. And that's why for me, I look at it in that way that how can you take the skill set and mindset of, of, startup of entrepreneurship of changing things of evolving all the all the really great characteristics that live in that world that what we're both passionate about you know how can you start to make that available more widely you know in those things so it's slightly different to what you said but there are some different nuances yeah, very, to it very very congruent yeah listen to finish off with because i'm conscious of your time and you probably have to have to go but i've got a couple of questions i think we've covered most of the stuff that's come through from the community we had one question, which was about, you know, when investing in early stage tech businesses, what is the most important thing when making your selection? So we've already covered that. Um, question here, how important are partnerships and influences in a tech startup growth strategy? Well, very important. And I think this is uh, one of the key values that a lot of early stage investors do. It's not, it's not even just the influence dynamic, but it's the network uh, yeah. that's brought to the table. And one of the things I think entrepreneurs can understand today what they couldn't when I was starting my first company is the reputational effect of different investors. And by the way, there's, yeah, yeah, there's not a categorical correct 
right? Like, oh, you need a reputational effect that's blue versus green. It's that you can understand the other person's reputational dynamics and how they behave based on observation and based on talking about what they've done historically. And that's incredibly powerful now in terms of that network building, because not all investors are equal by any stretch of the imagination. And these networks tend to be very dynamic. And they also, in addition to being dynamic, they often fold back on each other. Um, you know, what is it that you as a founder need right now to grow your business to the next level? Okay, money is a given, but what other things do you actually need? And I think historically, it was very hard for an entrepreneur to make that internal categorization and then line it up with the investors they were pursuing because it was very opaque what those investors could do for them for real. I think that's less opaque today. You've got, you've got the whole, I, I don't want to say it in, in a dumb it down anyway, but you've, it's a bit like signing the, the, um, you know, the, the quarterback out of college in the first round or whatever it is, you know, there's some investors that have a good track record or a strike rate. And I suppose if the entrepreneur can sign that one up, <laughs> you know, then that adds, adds a dimension to right. not to say it's going to be successful, but it certainly makes it look like the team, the whole team is, is more powerful. Some coaches are way better than others. And if you're, somebody that's trying to build something successful, whether you're an athlete or somebody else, if you pick a better coach, you're probably going to do better. Got it. Well, listen, we have been talking for ages, Brad. It's been awesome, mate. I mean, I like the fact that we've danced around so many different things. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Totally. My pleasure. Any, any chance I get to talk with somebody whose last name is my first name is a win for the day. There you go. That's always good. Well, listen, last question for you, mate. Where can people find you? Um, obviously, we'll put show, um, some stuff in the show notes around the book and all those sort of things. But any, sure. any... Uh, uh, the couple of easy places. My blog is at feld.com. I write regularly there. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at bfeld. And my email is very easy to find on the web. It's brad at feld.com. Great. Well, I'll make sure to put on the show notes. Do not hit Brad up just for money. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, Brad, this has been delightful. Send me an email, you. put NB in the title. Yeah, so there I'm you go. Don't, don't, don't just copy email. me in on it. Well, listen, Brad, it's been awesome having you on Scale Up Your Business this evening. Thanks for giving your time, your insights, uh, your passion to this subject is huge. So um, I'm very grateful to have you on the show. Thanks for having me.